you're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. TNL is a production of Young Clergy Network, committed to listening to, collaborating with, and empowering young pastors over at youngclergy.net. And right now, members get exclusive access to the preliminary results of our Young Clergy survey that over 900 pastors responded to this past March. Log in and check it out over at youngclergy.net. Today's role model episode is with NNU prof and deep thinker, Reverend Dr. Thomas J. Ward. Thanks for all you do for Young Clergy, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Rachel Jack, and I'm here with my guest, Dr. Tom Ord. Tom is a professor of theology and philosophy at NNU. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Okay, so the first question I ask everybody is, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? I ended up in the Church of the Nazarene because of my mother. She was raised in the Church of the Nazarene met my father who was actually in the uh, Dutch Reformed tradition and when they moved to the little town that I grew up in eastern Washington called Othello they started going to a Nazarene church because that was the one that seemed to fit them pretty well my dad was um, not necessarily committed to any particular denomination and they liked that church and became leaders and I grew up attending that church so tell me about your calling. How did you end up um, wanting to be in ministry? I actually went to Northwest Nazarene thinking I was going to go into broadcasting. As a high school student, I thought, you know, I want to be a disc jockey. We had one radio station in my hometown. It played only country music, which I don't like. But I walked into the owner of the station and says I, and told her that I want to go into that as a career. And she gave me three hours, five nights a week, playing country music. And I learned how to be a disc jockey. Wow. Yeah, pretty wild. <laughs> <laughs> so when I went to NNU, NNC at the time, I um, thought that's what I was going to do. And I was a communications major for about a year. But I really had a heart for wanting to help people and um, decided I should switch over and be a social work psychology double major. I did that about a year or so. I liked it, but I began to realize that in a lot of social work fields, people aren't, uh, it's not as acceptable to be open about your faith. And for me, I was at a time in my life in which I was very, uh, I was a part of Campus Crusade for Christ. I was a person who did lots of door-to-door, person-to-person witnessing. I felt like my calling was to be an evangelist, and that meant getting some kind of deeper religious training. And so I switched majors. My calling wasn't a massive experience at the altar. It wasn't a... Uh, typical you know thunderbolt from the sky hear a voice it was an evaluating what my interests were what my gifts were and what I might do to uh, live my life for Jesus Christ most effectively Mm. so you're at Northwest Nazarene College and graduate with a I ended up graduating with with what we call the pre-seminary a degree in those years which basically means um, you had to take a couple of years of Greek. Mm. And so, where'd you go from there? I took a job as a youth pastor in Walla Walla, Washington. And um, it was during that time that I began to think that maybe my interest in calling might be in education in some way. Mm. Uh, the kinds of things I cared about were the kinds of things that college students are oftentimes thinking about for the first time in their lives, at least in a sustained and personal kind of way. And I realized that um, people make big life decisions in their 20s. And I wanted to be a part of that decision-making process at a time when people are most vulnerable to make 
decisions about their career, who they're going to be, who they're going to be with. Um, I wanted to help people during that time, and I wanted to help them think. And so it just seemed natural that I should pursue some kind of graduate school education and um, start looking into that. So where'd you go? I decided to go to Nazarene Theological Seminary after four years of full-time uh, work in as a youth pastor in Walla Walla. I went to Kansas City, and uh, while there, I was actually a youth pastor music person in a church plant, a um, Church of God church plant. And um, being there was important for me in a lot of ways. Um, it helped to me to understand the Church of the Nazarene uh, more broadly. Mm. Um, the different avenues, different ways people think about what it means to be in the holiness tradition and to be a member of the Church of the Nazarene. It helped me to sort of get my head straight on what this whole sanctification stuff was about. For me, I ultimately decided it had to do with love, but getting there was very difficult. In fact, when I was in seminary, I was a part of an underground newspaper called The Harbinger, and it was something that uh, a few friends and I started, and we wrote controversial things and explored controversial topics, and and then we stuck these newspapers in everybody's box. And um, I once wrote an article called Why I Don't Believe in Holiness Anymore. Mm. And the basic ar idea of the argument was... Um, I don't really know what it is. Mm. And the people in the Church of the Nazarene that, seems, that are supposed to know what it is seem to disagree with one another. Mm. And um, so I'm confused. I don't know if I want to be in this group. Mm. And uh, it was at that time that I was began to read seriously the works of John Wesley. And although he also is sometimes unclear about what sanctification and holiness is all about, he has some fairly, I would say, even very clear claims about the centrality of love mm. for sanctification and holiness. And, um, and getting my head clear about love being the core made me believe I could stay in the Church of Nazarene and be intellectually faithful to the tradition. Mm. So you're at the seminary. Did you, you got an MDiv, I'm assuming? I did, yep. And where did you go from there? I went to Southern California at Claremont Graduate University mm. and pursued my PhD and ended up getting that in philosophy, religion, and theology. While I was there, I continued being an associate minister working with youth in a Church of the Nazarene there. And um, that ended up being a good experience in many ways. One of them is that it allowed me to have sort of my head in the academy and my practices and life in the local church. Um, and, and I've always kind of kept that a, a, as a part of who I am. I, I think of myself, and I think most scholars think of me as a, you know, a scholar who publishes material meant for scholars and academic presses, but also someone who publishes for the church, for a popular audience, I like to think of myself as a public theologian, mm -hmm. which means using languages, language that people can understand, or at least try my best to help them understand, and topics that people care about that are relevant. So I've always kind of felt like I, was, I wanted to do two things. In fact, my, if you look at my publishing strategy, I, um, I have the pattern of publishing a book aimed at the academy, followed by a book aimed at the church, followed by academy, church, this hmm. sort of rhythm of publishing. Some of that was self-conscious. Others just happened to be like that, but that's important to me. So you're at Claremont Graduate University? Yes. And you get your Ph.D. Did you stay there after that, or did you go somewhere I uh, graduated in 1999 and mm -hmm. was offered a job at Eastern Nazarene College. Hmm. And I uh, had a really strange dual title. I was professor of philosophy and youth ministry. Wow. <laughs> Which I think is so wild. It ended up working out pretty well. But um, that also meant that I continued having 
classes that were very theoretical, you know, teaching philosophy, but also classes that were very practical in the ministry of, uh, of the church. Um, I was there for three years before uh, moving back to the Northwest and taking a job as a theologian and philosopher at uh, NNU in 2002. When I was at ENC, I was very excited about sharing some of the ideas that I had in my PhD dissertation about who God is, a God of love, a God of relationship, and how we might think about God's power in relation to God's love. Um, I was naive, however, in thinking that uh, my dissertation written at a scholarly level was going to be widely influential in the form that I had written it. In other words, I was using language that even some in the academy wouldn't understand or appreciate. And uh, it was frustrating to me to think that I had information that could be helpful to people, but they couldn't understand it. Mm. And it was also difficult to think about, or difficult for me to... Um, figure out how to get that information out to people. You know, I'm given a platform as a professor to talk to students, but that's a limited audience. How do I help the broader church? And um, I determined that I needed to write differently, learn how to write better for a, a wider audience. And one of the things that helped me do that to a great uh, extent is I took a job as a reporter in a science and theology newspaper. Hmm. And the, I, I learned to use language that more people can understand, <laughs> to, to set aside the, the academic verbiage and write for the common person. Have you always had that interest in science, or was that a new thing? You know, it was kind of always there in the background, but um, it was more the opportunity to do this and... Part of my job was I was able to travel wherever I wanted in the world to be a part of conferences, give papers, and someone else would pay for it. <laughs> that's a beautiful thing when you're a, you know, a lowly college professor who doesn't have much of a travel budget. And so I said, look, I'm going to do that because basically all I have to do is write an article about what happened there related to science and religion. That opened up all kinds of opportunities for me to meet interesting and important people, to meet the leaders in the science and religion dialogue, which meant I learned an awful lot of things, and it opened doors for me when I then began doing my own publishing and speaking on those issues. Do you spend a lot of time trying to help people wrap their mind around science? I do. I, I like to put it like this. I care about the big questions in life. And science is one area in which some of those big questions emerge. It's not the only one. But science touches on most of the big questions. And so I feel like I have to take science seriously if I'm going to take into account the best thinking of the day and figure out what it means in relation to the biggest questions of our time. Mm. The theologians that I feel like I know don't necessarily have that kind of science aspect as well yeah how has that influenced your theology or or vice versa tell me about that interaction for you personally yeah that's an awesome question um you know at its best i think science realizes that what it says about the world is always open to adjustment always open to new ideas it's never fixed it's mm -hmm. always on the move mm -hmm. now sometimes scientists act as if or speak as if you know they've got things finally figured out and it's solid and, but in reality that's not really the case there are paradigm shifts there are new things that come up and science as a method it should always be open to adjustment theology is also on the move mm. theology is also not set and um, it's helped me to think about the um, things that seem to have lasting relevance and the things that seem to be temporary in both science and theology. Um, and that then has helped me to think of, to wrestle with, with difficult questions that people stumble on in relation to, like, for instance, one of my favorite topics, the problem of evil. You know, why would a loving and powerful God 
not prevent the genuine evils of the world. Um, I am far more open than most of my theologian friends to rethinking how we talk about God's power because I think of theology as not something that's fixed. I think of something, uh, theology is on the move, just like God's on the move. Mm. And as much as I respect what's gone on before, I don't think I have to always stick with what everyone's always thought. So I'm, I'm bolder to make creative and, and new uh, proposals in theology because of that. So when you're working on these things, when you're thinking through these issues in ways that people maybe are afraid to think through themselves, how does it go? What do people say? Some people are angry, upset, nervous, and uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But other people say, finally, someone's thinking differently. I don't know how many times after a talk, someone's come up to me and said, you know, what you just said is something i kind of been thinking for a long time, but I haven't really had the words to articulate it, and now I know I'm not the only one who thinks this way. Mm. Or, in the last year I published a book called The Uncontrolling Love of God that makes a really controversial claim that God can't prevent genuine evils in the world. That makes a lot of people nervous, saying God can't do something. But I get notes on average about once every week or almost maybe every other week of someone who's been abused, who's blamed God for what's happened to them, who read my book and now can believe in a loving God again. Mm -hmm. I get oftentimes it's women who have been sexually abused who think of God as either causing or allowing what happened to them and they couldn't find that God loving. And to say, to hear someone articulate carefully a view of God who is powerful but not controlling, who shouldn't be blamed for the harm they've gone through because this God gives freedom and agency and power to all creation, that is life affirming. Mm -hmm. And so when I get those kind of notes, I'm like jacked. You know, I'm like, this is so important. This is providing a way for some people to look at the world that allows them to affirm belief in God and belief in love, the things I care about so deeply. Mm. What is the premise of that book in a nutshell, I guess? What yeah, is so I begin that book looking at four real-life evils that have occurred. One, the Boston, city, uh, Boston Marathon bombing. The second one is... a uh, family in Canada who are driving down the freeway when a semi-truck coming the opposite direction flips up a rock from the wheels. It goes through the windshield and kills the woman in the passenger seat. They come and investigate, the police do, and I, I read this report online. The, uh, the police officer who wrote the report says it wasn't the fault of the truck driver. No one intentionally tried to throw this rock in the air it was an act of God third example I'm reading about this guy in New York who's a, a Jew whose daughter is born with severe physical deformities and he goes to his rabbi and says why does God do this why does God allow this I think his daughter has died I'm not sure but so I wanted to answer, what about those kinds of things? No one purposely made a mistake. The mother, the father, the doctors. What do you do with birth defects? Mm. The fourth example was a woman in the Congo. Uh, rebels came into her village. They shot her husband. Her kids started crying because of their father was killed. They, he, they shot all her kids. They raped her viciously and thought she was dead, and she survived. This woman from Newsweek came and interviewed her. And in the interview, she described what happened to her. And then she said, I don't think I want to continue living anymore. Now, to those people who say that God allows pain to make us stronger, I say, crap, that doesn't work. There are people whose lives aren't better for what happened to them. 
It's not all a part of some blueprint or master plan God has. So I take those real-life examples and then begin to work carefully through issues of free will, randomness and chance in the world, values, the laws of nature, and then get to theology and say, okay, here are some ways in which theologians have tried to answer this. And frankly, I don't find any of them very satisfying. Mm -hmm. I think we need to think about this differently. And my proposal is that God is a God of love, and that love necessarily gives freedom to complex creatures, agency to less complex creatures, the very existence to the you know, microorganisms and the quantum level of reality. And God can't control those to whom he gives life and freedom and agency. Mm. And that's a controversial view, but it solves the major question of why God didn't prevent the rape, the bombing, the whatever. A lot of people don't like to think there's something God can't do. You know, what's that song we sang in Sunday school? My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing that he cannot do. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, thinking that God can do anything is at the core of what most people... I mean, think about the way Hollywood thinks about God. Mm. You don't have a movie called Bruce All-Loving. You have it Bruce Almighty. So it's the power angle that most people turn to first when they want to talk about God. And then they've described that power in such a way that makes God capable of doing practically anything. Even though Scripture itself talks about things God can't do. Hebrews says God can't lie. James says God can't be tempted. Psalmist says God can't grow tired. Mm. Um, my favorite one is when Paul says to uh, Timothy, when you are faithless, God remains faithful or steadfast because God cannot deny himself. Mm. And so my proposal is that God cannot deny himself can be interpreted as saying God is a God of love, that love is who God is, and God cannot deny this love. And this love means giving freedom and agency to others. And that's why God can't prevent the genuine evils of the world. I mentioned that um, I get notes from people often who read this idea, especially people who are victims of abuse who find this liberating. But there's another group of people who also find it very attractive. And it's not necessarily people who have been physically or sexually abused. It's people who are at the margins, mm. people who are minority voices, people who are squashed by the drive to maintain the status quo in society. It's really easy to think that if God can do anything, and that if you're at the bottom of the totem pole, that God must want you there. Because if God really wanted you out of there, God could get you out of there. Mm. And to have a theology that says that, nope, the status quo isn't what God necessarily wants is really powerful for a lot of people. Is there an aspect of that argument that Wesleyanism has contributed for you? It's a great question. Uh, you know, the Wesleyan tradition is known for its emphasis upon free will, but a lot of Wesleyans, well, very few if any Wesleyan scholars have taken free will to the extent that I have. Mm -hmm. But John Wesley actually has some language that supports my view that, of course, I like to appeal to. Well, sure. <laughs> um, he actually says some things about God that God can't take away free will. Mm. Uh, in his Sermon on Providence, for instance, he talks about this. So I didn't know this before I started formulating my ideas. So I, you know, I can't say that I learned it from John Wesley, but... After having come to that position, I found out that John Wesley held it. Most Wesleyan, most Wesleyans in general, even Wesleyan scholars, don't seem to know that, but um, there is some support. Now, there are other places John Wesley says things that suggest otherwise, so it's, I'm not saying he's systematic and you know consistent all the way, but there are some quotes from Wesley that support this kind of position. Is there a part of being Wesleyan that allows you the freedom to think outside the box and to go 
these other directions. Yes, definitely. Wesley emphasized God's love. Wesley emphasized the importance of experience. And Wesley emphasized the heart as primary. That means that if you are working in theology, you have to think carefully about what the world is really like, mm. not just what you think it might be or should be or could be. And the world that's really out there is a world with suffering. The mm. world that's really out there is a world of confusion. Mm. And interestingly enough, if you begin, if, you, if experience plays a really important role in your theology, you have to take into account science the voices of the marginalized. You have to take into account your own experience and the experience of others. And that then, I think, opens you up to the possibility of having this creative theology, this nimble approach to thinking about the big questions. Uh, and I hope, uh, at least in my life, it, it allows me to take bigger risks in my thinking about who God is and who I ought to be. Mm. That's fascinating. I, I know that you worked on a project called Renovating Holiness that kind of looks to experience and tradition. And um, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that project and kind of what inspired you to, to work on something like that and how it came about. That was an awesome experience. It still is an awesome experience. That experience began with Josh Broward sending me a note, I believe it was in January of 2014, saying, hey, I've got this idea of maybe doing a book, getting maybe 10 generation Xers to talk about how their minds, how they're thinking about holiness. And my response was, no, we need millennials and Xers. We need to think more like 100 people. We need to think big. And Josh was totally on board. Um, and so then we just started drawing up lists. We wanted to make sure we had lots of women. We wanted to have folks from around the world. This, uh, I've been told by um, uh, Stan Ingersoll at headquarters that this book by far has the most diversity of voices of any NPH, or actually it's not NPH, but any Nazarene-oriented book. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, that's a lot of fun. What's really amazing, I think, is that I've never met Josh Broward until the book was published a year later at the book launch party. <laughs> I mean, we'd exchange emails. I think maybe we talked on the phone one time, but never seen each other face to face until we're at the party where we're actually giving books to some of the authors. And that's the power of social media, the power of passion, and frankly, that we were willing to trust each other. And people are willing to trust us, you know. There's interest in the Church of Nazarene from millennials and Xers in trying to appropriate what we think is the best in the past with what we hope can be the best for the future. Mm. And Renovating Holiness is a book that tries to capture a little bit of that. A really cool book would have thousands of essays, but obviously you can't do that. This is a little taste of what millennials and Xers want to keep from what's come from the past, but also realizing we can't stay the same. We won't stay the same. The question is, how will we change? Mm. What has the response been like to that text? Uh, it's been, it's sold well. Um, we self-published that book. Wow. Um, Josh put a couple grand down, I put in about 10 grand, and we, ordered a couple thousand copies we sold all those we sold many e-copies where we've we've got back all our money that's hard to do in today's <laughs> today's publishing world mm. the response i think from younger people it's been a sign of hope mm. um, for older people i think it's also hopeful in some ways but um, there may be some of the language that they find dear and helpful that doesn't appear in the book as much as they would like. And so I, it might be a guarded hopefulness. But I think anyone who's a part of the Church of the Nazarene who cares about who we are, cares about what the future might be. And to have folks who are millennials and Xers who are trying to appropriate the tradition and move forward in the tradition, it's got to be a positive, 
sign for, for folks who care about that tradition. Hmm. When you're explaining to people outside of the Church of the Nazarene what holiness is or what renovating holiness was about, what do you talk about? Oh, wow. Here it's hard for me not to sort of bring my own views of holiness right to the center stage and sort of, you know, make that the key. Because for me, love is at the core. And for a lot of the writers, love is at the core. But it's not the thing that everyone talked about. Um, mm. At the end of Renovating Holiness, I give what I think are 10 characteristics that I find in the book. Number one, the number one thing I think you should learn from this book is that understandings of holiness vary and are diverse. There's no one right way, or at least no one uh, agreed upon way to think about holiness. We're all over the place. I think that's healthy, but if you're a person who thinks that we all have to be on the exact same page, this book is going to worry you mm. because there's diversity there. Mm. The reality is, is if we got people in a room and asked them, okay, what is the sort of bottom line we all have to agree on, it would be hard to come up with that bottom line. I keep proposing love as the bottom line. A lot of people like that, but I don't want to impose that. It's got to be something that people agree upon. Um, I think part of the thing that keeps us together is a, some kind of a shared history, shared relationships. I sometimes call it network theology, mm -hmm. that there are networks that we have amongst ourselves that keeps us together. I don't want to be the group that it's the institution as an institution that is our primary identity. I think institutions are important, but they're always secondary. And I sometimes fear that it's the institution that has become the driving force to who we are. And I, ought to th I think it ought to be our theology and our way of life, which mm -hmm. to me is the issues of love. So sociologists often analyze the process that uh, takes place when groups go from movements to institutions. Institutions are put in place to crystallize and encapsulate and, and capture the gains from the past. But in doing that, they inevitably take away some of the passion, mm -hmm. some of the flexibility, some of the motivation people had in the first place. And so the Church of Nazarene is now old enough that we're not a movement like we used to be. We have uh, things put in place that are safety nets, securities that are important, that are attempts to, to uh, maintain something we thought was positive from the past. Mm. But as soon as we go down that road, the temptation becomes to think that we have it fixed, that we've got it right, and institutions necessarily, especially if they're democratic institutions, necessarily elect leaders. And leaders feel obligated to follow the general will of those who elected them. Mm. But those who elected them often have moved to that position because of something that's happened in the past. And if you're a young person or a new person to the denomination and you have a vision for a future, that doesn't mesh perfectly with the past, it's going to be very difficult to persuade those in power to shift their view, to be open to this new thing, mm -hmm. because they feel obligated to those who elected them. So one of the major problems that Church of Nazarene has right now is that from the very top, the GSs, the DSs, pastors, we feel a certain obligation to maintain what we think is right about the past. And in that feeling of obligation, people are tempted to be less creative, less forward-looking, less open than they ought to be if they're really staying true to the roots of who we are as a people. Mm. This is not, in my view, a problem of becoming something as a denomination that is radically different from who we used to be. 
It's taking the spirit of who we used to be and moving it in new directions. Right now, it seems to me that in many cases, we've squashed some of that spirit in an attempt to maintain structures and powers and systems that will uh, keep the institution functioning well. Take as a great example, women in leadership. Our identity, our very beginning, had women in pastoral roles. There are women in pastoral roles today, but the percentage of overall is far less. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, etc. But I think those leaders in positions of power, superintendents, pastors, etc., who recognize that the spirit of who we are from our past is a spirit that creates great opportunities for women. Those are the people who are moving us in a, in, into the future in a positive and generative kind of way. What kinds of things do you envision for the future? Are you hoping for the denomination as a whole? Well, again, for me, the issues are always love as the very core. And right now in the Church of Nazarene, the issues of LGBT are so important especially for younger leaders. So as someone who believes that we must change our views on a variety of things, including this, the LGBT stuff, the question is, how do we move forward as best we can together to make those kind of changes? Mm. And that means, unless you believe in some sort of unilateral decision by one or a few people, that we have to have a wide conversation. Mm. But having a wide conversation raises tension. People get angry and upset. A lot of people don't know how to have a, a civil discourse. So we have to think carefully about having those kinds of conversations in ways that can be helpful and loving uh, amongst people who have different views on the subject. We have to choose people to be in those conversations who disagree, not just slightly from where we're at right now, but have real disagreements mm. and can model that disagreement in a loving way. See, if you choose people to have to be sort of the first people to have this conversation in a public way that are only just slightly different from our present view, it comes across as fake. It's not genuine. We're not taking it really seriously. Or if you choose people to have sort of be the public representatives for this kind of view who are really dogmatic and not open to seeing any other view than their own, then it just paralyzes and makes people afraid and angry. Some people will either lash out or other people will just sort of leave. They'll just say, okay, I can't handle this. I'm going somewhere where we can actually talk in a civil way. So we have to begin to think about these kind of public conversations People who can speak lovingly, diplomatically, kindly, gently, can really try to understand the other position even though they disagree with it and begin to move forward to widening what's appropriate for us in the Church of the Nazarene in thinking about controversial issues like the LGBT one. I think a lot of people, especially maybe younger people, just because they've not lived as long, haven't been around long enough to know that the denomination has changed over time. Mm. You look at the manuals from the 20s and 30s, they're just not the same as the manual today. Even in my own lifetime, just recently, we made a major overhaul of Article 10 on sanct entire sanctification. Now, um, it wasn't like, you know, throwing out everything, but it was a pretty, there were some important changes there. So our cardinal doctrine has undergone change just in the last few decades. Mm -hmm. We're always in the midst of changing. The question is, what are we going to change to? What are we going to retain from the past? And what new things are we going to appropriate given our new ways of understanding Scripture and seeing God at work in the world? What do you want to keep from the past? Well, this is going to sound like a broken record, but... <laughs> Love. <laughs> yeah. I also want to keep the notion that 
we can really be transformed in this life. Mm. That sin doesn't have to dominate. That we can be reoriented from a life of sin to a life of love. That to me is at the heart of our tradition. I want to keep our emphasis upon freedom, free will. I think that makes the most sense. Continue to reject predestination. The importance our tradition has placed upon community. Well, that gets overlooked all the time. Um, you know, the Wesleys and their bands and societies, our own movement in emphasizing why we have to have accountability to one another and responsibility. At our best, our tradition has rejected the idea that you can be a Christian in a, some sort of solitary way. Mm. Now, at our worst, we've let the community sometimes trample over individual expression. We can't do that either. We've got to have a right balance. Can you give me an example of that? Sure. Um, well, I'll go to an old example that, some, that you probably think is kind of funny, but it was a big deal for me. Mm. I was in the Christian rock and roll when I was a kid. <laughs> and uh, uh, many times I went to camps and heard sermons about how rock and roll was from the devil. You mm. know, that may sound really weird from you, but that was what I was told. Mm. And that was an example, it seems to me, of the group trying to squash individual expression that was relevant and meaningful to some of us who were really into that Christian rock and roll stuff when it first got started. Mm. People were unable to disassociate some of the negative things they, they uh, associated with rock and roll with some positive things. Today, that's not really an issue at all. But at one time, that was the hot issue. So that's an example of how the group can sometimes not understand how the expression of the one or the few can be healthy and positive uh, as expressions of God's activity in our lives. I mean, I feel like I see that when I think outside the box. Hmm. Yep. And I, it makes people nervous. I'm sure yes. you feel that a lot. Oh, yes, that's the story of my life. I mean, but I'm, I'm, so, I'm so passionate about this because for a lot of reasons. But one of the big ones is people are hurting. Mm. They're not just hurting in terms of like things that have been done to them, either physical or mental or psychological, oppressive. But I think people are hurting in the sense that they're trying to make sense out of life. And they're not given very many ways to make sense out of life. And they're not encouraged to think creatively in that process. Um, and I can't do everything, but one of the things I want to do is help people to think differently and to be open to explore uh, because I think God's big and I think uh, God wants us to use our minds in love for God and others. I know that a lot of your work is about making big ideas accessible. Yeah. Um, and maybe you don't have anything to say about this, but I've, I've always wondered what you might say to a children's pastor who's wondering what kinds of things am I able to make accessible to my children in, you know, in my children's group at, at my church? Um, you know, I've heard a lot of different things that kids aren't ready for this or that, that they're not capable of understanding one thing or the other. Is there advice that you might have for somebody whose job is making theology accessible to children? Yeah. Well, the first thing I, say, I would say is it's hard to do. Mm. Um, the second thing I would say is that the brain develops at a particular rate such that children at certain ages aren't able to grasp abstract ideas. And so talking about God and theology can be appropriate for a seven-year-old, that the same kind of talk isn't appropriate for a 17-year-old. But unfortunately, we've often thought what's good at the early age must be the way we do it the whole way through. So I don't have any like magical advice for people teaching seven-year-olds except to say that it's okay if you make it really, it's okay if you present to them visions of God and scripture that are overly simplistic for you as the person delivering that um, because that's where they're at. That's living and teaching in a loving manner. 
But to the general church, I say, let's not keep that same approach when they get to be 17 or 77. I sometimes feel like we think that telling the stories and making them sound the same for the 17-year-old is the right thing to do because that's the way we've always done it. But 17-year-olds think differently. They can think more abstractly. They can think more um, in a, a much more sophisticated way. And we have to take that into account, otherwise we'll become irrelevant. We just won't make sense. Back to the science stuff. There's a whole lot of people who come through Sunday school who are taught about Adam and Eve as historical figures and then get into college, learn about science and evolution, start looking at what the implications are for these theories and come to believe they have to choose between either believing in Adam and Eve and whether that has anything true, anything true to say to us or believing in evolution. Mm -hmm. They're not ever presented with the possibility that the Adam and Eve story can tell us really important truths about God and who we are and sin and yet not have to be historical people that evolution can tell us something true about reality and the development of species over time, and yet not tell us everything true about God, etc. That both those things can give us important truths about who we are and the world we live in, and it doesn't have to be an either-or kind of choice. What do you say to a college student who's wrestling with what they feel like is a dichotomy there? I say um, there are lots of folks out there who don't think it's a dichotomy, who've thought carefully about this. You can find websites, books, and if you talk around enough or you ask around enough, you can find probably people who will contact you and talk with you that have figured out ways to bring these two together in a very smooth kind of way, in a very helpful kind of way. Um, and so you don't have to choose between science and faith. You don't have to choose between believing in God and believing in evolution. Mm -hmm. Take, for example, uh, Daryl Falk, who's a professor of biology at Point Loma, Nazarene. In his book, Coming to Peace with Science, he talks about going off to grad school and learning all about the latest in science and feeling like he had to make a choice and for in his story and the story of many people in his situation, it's not so much intellectually that they couldn't do the gymnastics to make it happen. It was, how will my local pastor and local church think about me? Mm. Will they let me be a part of things in a genuine way? Mm. Do I have to hide my views? So it was more of a sociological issue really than an intellectual one. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, you know, one of the things I think leaders in the Church of Nazarene have to do is to create space for scientists to live authentically, mm. even if the way they end up thinking about God may be not quite fit the way other people think about God. They have to be allowed space in our congregations to be who they are as people of faith and um, experts in their fields of science. Gosh, that's great. Kind of changing the subject a little bit. Okay. If I um, was a young clergy person in the Church of the Nazarene listening to this and I only really had time to read one of your books, mm. which book would you ask me to read and why? Probably the one you should start with is the one I co-wrote called Relational Holiness mm. uh, because it was really written to people in the holiness tradition to think about sanctification, to help people understand what holiness and sanctification, in my view, ought to be about. And um, it's probably one of my most influential books within our tradition. Mm. Um, I'm tempted to say my most recent book, The Uncontrolling Love of God, because that's probably the one that's had the most influence more widely. But the one to start with is probably Relational Holiness. That's great. What inspires you to stay in the Church of the Nazarene? What is it that's keeping you here? Yeah. I believe in what I think is the core of who we are as a denomination. And the core of who we are, I think, is fundamentally about two things. 
One, it's about a certain sort of fundamental beliefs that we have about love and transformation, that we really can be transformed to be more like Jesus Christ, to live lives of love. I think other denominations can talk about that and live that, but the way our denomination frames that theologically and biblically makes the most sense to me. Mm. Secondly, I'm still a part of this group because of the people in this group, the people that I love, the people who have influenced me positively, the people who I want to influence. Now, I'm not some sort of Pollyannish, only look at the bright side kind of person. There have been people in this group who've hurt me and my family deeply. There's people who've done what I think is evil to me. I don't leave the denomination because of what they've done, in part because I care about the future, I care about this group, and I care about people who come after me. Mm. And so if I can hold to what I think is what's transformative, what's loving, what is like Jesus Christ, and also say, I'm a part of this wider community of people, some of whom are incredible saints of God, others who are profoundly flawed. Um, I want to be a part of that as long as they'll keep me. <laughs> you know, who knows? Um, Maybe even some of the things I say on this interview will be the kinds of things that people think are stretching us too far. I hope not. But um, in my way of thinking, I'm at the core of who we are. Mm. But I'm not the only person who gets to decide whether I get to stay in the denomination. Mm. It's up to the wider group and especially some leaders in the wider group. Mm. Well, I, I don't think I can... Um, not take this opportunity to say thank you for the work that you're doing. I think even just giving others of us the freedom to question and doubt and think outside the box and recognize that change is coming and look forward to what we hope it looks like rather than trying to avoid it um, is really powerful. I think you've laid the groundwork for a lot of people to have hope for the future mm. and where we're going um, so I really appreciate you and the work that you're doing. That makes me feel so good. Oh, Thank you. If someone had a question about something that you've said or they just want to get in touch with you, um, where can they reach you? The best way is probably through email, t-j-o-o-r-d at n-n-u dot e-d-u. Mm. I have a website with lots and lots of stuff on it thomasjord.com if so if you want to read some stuff I've written that's not quite the same as actually corresponding with me but I'm pretty good about responding to emails quickly I have a Twitter account I'm less active there than I am on other social media like Facebook but I check it at least a couple times a day but I prefer email because um, I'm able to I don't know probably a lot of reasons but I just prefer it <laughs> sure <laughs> Well, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks so much.